Welcome to the GRF On The Go podcast. The subject matter experts at GRF CPAs and Advisors created this podcast to offer insights on current topics, as well as new ideas and best practices that your team can apply today. This podcast was originally presented as a live webinar. CPE information provided during the podcast is no longer valid, but if you're interested in watching the video version of this session or accessing the slide deck, visit our website at grfcpa.com forward slash events. Enjoy the episode and remember to subscribe for future content. Good morning. I would like to welcome everyone participating in our fifth annual nonprofit State of the Union 2024 Industry Update for Tax-Exempt Organizations. <clears throat> My name is Amy Boland, and I'm an audit partner and director of the audit department here at GRF. Today, I'm joined by an all-star cast of GRF's audit, tax, and risk advisory experts. We also have a wonderful guest speaker today joining us today. Uh, Yuko Kojima is calling in from the National Glass Association. Please note this webinar is not intended as financial or legal advice. This is simply for educational purposes only. We are GRF CPAs and advisors based out of Bethesda, Maryland, serving our clients in the DMV as well as nationally and internationally. Our firm serves a wide range of clients covering not-for-profit, for-profit, schools, government contractors, and others. However, our particular niche is within that non-for-profit INGO space. We've been in operation for several decades and recently celebrated our 40-year anniversary in 2021. A couple of announcements here before we get started with the content. We are so excited to announce our recent partnership with the University of Maryland's Smith School of Business. GRF has committed to provide $150,000 to help start the Artificial Intelligent Initiative for Capital Market Research at UMD. We strongly believe that continued investments in innovation will help automate and enhance accounting processes for our clients' engagements. I would also like to congratulate our two newest partners, Yevgeny Suhenko and Sue Chan. In addition, I would also like to welcome GRF's newest tax principal, Lisa Heller. You'll be hearing from these three amazing people today. Here is our agenda for today's events. As you can see, we have a lot to get through. So I'm gonna turn over things over to Sue next to talk about the employee retention credit. But first, we're gonna kick off our first polling question. Please answer the poll if you're looking to receive CPE credit. Hey, Sue. Kick it over to you. Awesome. Thank you, everyone. Um, and good morning. I am excited to be here and we'll be covering a brief update on a topic that I'm sure many of you have heard of quite frequently in recent news, the employee retention credit. Just a quick overview and a reminder of what exactly the employment, the employee retention credit is. It was created by Congress to reward employers for keeping workers on payroll during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, the ERC is not to be confused with the Paycheck Protection Program and the Economic Injury Disaster Loan. The ERCs are refundable federal tax credit, whereas the other two are loans. Um, the ERC is available to eligible employers that pay qualified wages to some or all their employees after March 12, 2020 and before January 1st, 2022. 
We'll go over what determines an employer's eligibility in just a few slides. Um, the actual credit itself is calculated differently for the tax years of 2020 and 2021, and the total benefit per employee can be up to $26,000. Okay, so how is employee retention credit actually calculated? Um, for the tax year 2020, the refundable tax credit is 50% of qualified wages paid per employee for up to $10,000 of qualified wages. Thus, the maximum credit is $5,000. For the tax year 2021, the refundable tax credit is 70% of qualified wages paid per employee up to a maximum amount of $7,000 per employee per quarter and up to $21,000 for the entire year. So with the exception of a recovery startup business, most taxpayers became ineligible to claim the ERC for wages paid after September 30th, 2021. So as you can see in the chart listed below on the slide, um, the total maximum credit adds up so that the maximum claim can be $26,000 per employee. All right, so now let's go over what determines an employer's eligibility for the credit. Generally, businesses and tax-exempt organizations that qualify are those that were shut down by a government order due to the COVID-19 pandemic during 2020 or the first three calendar quarters of 2021, or experienced the required decline in gross receipts during the eligibility periods during 2020 or the first three calendar quarters of 2021, or qualified as a recovery startup business for the third or fourth quarters of 2021. Eligible employers must have paid qualified wages. You would think that this is an obvious, but we'll, we'll get into that. Um, eligible employers can claim the ERC on an original or amended employment tax return for qualified wages paid between March 13th, 2020 and December 31st, 2021. So now I want to go over some quick and dirty statistics and facts about the employee retention credit. Um, employers have filed more than 3.6 million claims, and the government has paid out $230 billion, which is roughly tripled early estimates. Since the credit has become available, third-party firms and promoters have advised and encouraged firms to claim the credit when they may not qualify. These third parties often charge large upfront fees or a fee that is contingent on the amount of the refund. They may also fail to inform taxpayers that the wage deductions claimed on the business's federal income tax return must be reduced by the amount of the credit. So following concerns about aggressive ERC marketing, the IRS announced in September of 23 that there was going to be a halt on processing new ERC claims through at least the end of 2023. Um, and in December 2023, 20,000 letters were sent to taxpayers notifying them of disallowed ERC claims. So this group of letters alone cover taxpayers who were ineligible because either their entity did not exist or they did not actually have employees for the time period when the credit was claimed. So it's very basic criteria that was not met. The IRS created a withdrawal option where employers who have filed an ERC claim but have not yet received a refund to withdraw their submission. Um, this withdrawal option was created to help small business owners and others who were pressured or misled by ERC marketers or promoters into filing ineligible claims. And claims that are withdrawn will be treated as if they were never filed and the IRS will not impose penalties or interest. Um, also in December 2023, the IRS launched the Voluntary Disclosure Program. 
Um, officials said employers who receive the credit but no longer think that they were ineligible can pay back 80% of the money that they received rather than the full amount. So the reason why that they are allowing this partial repayment is because firms that offered help with the credit charged fees that were up to 20% of the refund. So employers effectively can pay back the net amount that they received. However, they do have to provide the IRS details about the ERC firm that they used. So as you can see, there's been a lot of fraudulent and ineligible claims made and the IRS has been cracking down hard. The Internal Revenue Service added widely circulating promoter claims involving the employee retention credit as a new entry in the annual Dirty Dozen list of tax scams. And this Dirty Dozen list represents the worst of the worst as far as tax scams go. Um, due to the number of these fraudulent and ineligible claims, the IRS and Department of Justice have created task teams to investigate potential fraud and includes members from several different governmental agencies. Um, IRS says it has initiated 330 criminal investigations involving more than $2.8 billion of fraudulent ERC claims and encourages employers to withdraw questionable pending claims. Maryland alone has had more than 20 criminal defendants charged with over $40 million worth of ERC and PPP violations since August of 2022. The IRS is cracking down and is investigating and prosecuting against fraudulent claims. I've listed some of the charges that have been filed against those who have been found guilty of filing a fraudulent ERC. These include bank fraud, money laundering, and mail and wire fraud. Criminal and civil investigations are still ongoing and if found guilty can result in fees, restitution, and even prison time. Okay, so the most recent update, Friday, January 19th, the Ways and Means Committee, committee voted 40 to three to advance a bill that would set a January 31st cutoff date um, to quest ERC refunds. Under the current law, the deadline to file claims for the 2020 tax year was April 15th, 2024, and then the deadline to file claims for the 2021 tax year is April 15th, 2025. Recess was planned for last week um, and they returned yesterday. And if passed, it will be sent to Senate for consideration. Um, I've been checking the news and there still hasn't been any updates. And while it's not clear that the bill will pass in its current form, this bill creates a real risk to companies that no ERC claims filed after January 31st will be processed, even if a final tax bill is passed after January 31st. So the key takeaways, um, eligible businesses should file ERC claims by January 31st, which is tomorrow, um, but remember that you have to really review your eligibility, consult with a trusted tax professional before claiming the credit. Um, and for businesses who have claimed but now doubt their eligibility, they should definitely consult legal counsel. And for businesses who have already submitted should review their eligibility with a tax professional, especially if a tax credit promoter was used. And with that, this concludes my portion of the presentation. Thank you so much for your time. And I believe that we are ready for our next poll. Okay, so it's time to kick off the nonprofit tax update. Um, I'm Lisa Heller and I'm here with Jana Gadarzi. 
Uh, she and I have a number of important tax updates that we'll be sharing with you today. And I hope this won't be anticlimactic after the ERC discussion. Uh, we'll do our best to keep this interesting and also be respectful of your time today. Uh, so Jana's going to kick it off with some details of the annual inflation update. Jana? Thank you, Lisa. So Revenue Procedure 2023-34 was issued by the IRS, and it provides annual inflation adjustments for the tax year 2024. This includes those affecting exempt organizations, and I've highlighted on the slides those that are of particular interest to the exempt organizations. So for purpose of defining the term unrelated trade or business, um, income of certain exempt organizations will not include a low-cost article of $13.20. Insubstantial benefits that may be received by a donor without reducing the value of charitable contribution deduction, um, also $13.20. And then the next slide talks about the, um, for tax years beginning in 2023, the dues limitation to qualify for the reporting exemption for non-deductible lobbying expenses will be $140 or less. And then we get into the penalties associated with the failure to file forms 990, 990EZ and the 990PF. So those will also increase. Um, for those smaller organizations, which are described as organizations with gross receipts of $1,274,000 or less, the late filing fee is $25 per day, not to exceed the lesser of $12,500 or 5% of the gross receipts. And for what they consider larger organizations with gross receipts exceeding $1,274,000 a day, the late filing fee is $125 per day, not to exceed $63,500. So this just serves as a reminder of how important it is for organizations to file timely. Organizations should focus on gathering the information to complete the 990 in a timely fashion and meet those filing deadlines. Because once penalties are assessed, it just really creates a burden on the organization that can easily be prevented. Um, I'm going to turn it back over to Lisa now to talk about the donor advised funds. Thanks, Jana. So on November 13th, Treasury issued proposed regulations on donor advised funds, and I'm just going to call them DAFs here because it's shorter. Uh, formal guidance on DAFs was first added to the Internal Revenue Code as part of the Pension Protection Act of 2006. And so now we're starting to get proposed regulations only 17 years later. The proposed regs cover Code Section 4966. They include definitions and examples of how a DAF of a donor, a donor advisor, advisory privileges, and taxable distributions. They also include examples of who is not included in these categories and when excess benefit transactions might be triggered. Uh, the proposed regs do not include guidance on some of the more burning questions surrounding DAFs. These burning questions include, uh, for example, how private foundations might work with DAFs, whether using DAFs to fulfill donor pledges and other such bifurcated payments give more than an incidental benefit to the donor, very important, how to include payments from DAFs in a recipient's public support test, and whether DAFs will be subject to minimum payout requirements like private foundations are. Uh, however, this first set of regs is likely to set a foundation for additional coming guidance in this area. The latest IRS priority guidance plan lists four such projects on DAF proposed regs, including this one. So I'm glad to see that they're finally moving on guidance in this important area. There've been a lot of questions on how and how you can't use DAFs in your life. Uh, the comment period for these proposed regs was recently extended to February 15th of this year, so it's still open. Uh, they extended it by 30 days. Uh, if you have any thoughts or opinions on these proposed regs that you'd like to share with Treasury, now's the time to speak up and uh, provide comments. 
And now Jana will say a few words about giving trends in the charitable sector. Thank you, Lisa. So we're gonna talk about the giving, next slide please, <laughs> trends in the charitable um, giving. So it has decreased for the second year in a row. And according to Giving USA's new report, total charitable giving by corporations, foundations, individuals, and bequests request to support the work of nonprofits dropped by 10.5% when adjusted for inflation. And giving by individuals fell by an even deeper um, amount by 13.4%, and new donors dropped by 18.1%. So while we're looking at um, the 2023 numbers, those aren't quite out yet. Next slide. Um, but why? What's causing the decline? So one of the things um, is the use of donor-advised funds. So donor-advised funds are not legally required to spend the money they receive, so they can hold on to it as long as they want. So that could lead to some donations maybe sitting in those donor-advised funds and not getting to the charities. Um, individuals also tend to give more during times of crisis, which is what we saw with COVID-19. During the pandemic, we saw a spike in donations, especially to food banks and other services to help those that were directly affected by the pandemic. And then there's been an uncertain economic times. There were drops in the stock market, there's high inflation, and that causes many households really to make tough decisions about their charitable giving for the year. So how can charities turn it around? Um, regardless of the economy, nonprofits can take steps to strengthen relationships with their donors and raise more funds. Organizations should maybe focus on new and innovative ways to fundraise. Um, maybe advancing their programs, um, their digital programs to adapt to changes, the use of AI to target donors, and focus on the fundraising tool that's already in their arsenal, which is the Form 990. That's often overlooked as a fundraising tool, but organizations should maybe really think about looking at the program descriptions annually and make sure that the details um, really show all the work done by the charity throughout the year be more thoughtful in the details they're putting on the program descriptions, be quantitative, how many were served, days of care provided, numbers of session held, discuss goals for the current year and long-term, and maybe provide some statistical information, even if it's just an estimate. Um, 990, or organizations can also review the functional expense statement on the 990, look at the ratio of program expenditures to supporting services, is it trending in the right direction? I know a lot of donors want to be sure that funds are being spent on program activities and not supporting the services of the charity, not the supporting services of the charity. And then update those disclosures on Schedule O. Um, review those governance policies. Make sure that they're up to date, that what's really happening is still um, consistent with what's going on in the organization. And just use Schedule O in general to provide some information about the organization that has some discrepancies and and. Um, so the 990 is a great fundraising tool, and the organization should really try and take advantage of that. And I'm going to turn it back over to Lisa to talk about the UBI guidance. Thanks, Jana. So uh, just, just real quick on this. In December 2023, IRS published a revised technical guide covering everybody's favorite topic, the unrelated business income tax. Uh, IRS technical guides contain information that are meant to help IRS agents work their cases. They're comprehensive, they're issue-specific, and most important, they're written in plain English. So this particular technical guide is 142 pages long, and it pretty much covers UBI in all of its uh, many ways, shapes, and forms. 
Uh, it's important to note that the technical guide offers no new substantive guidance regarding UBI and UBIT. So sections 511 through 514 of the code haven't changed. Uh, UBI types themselves haven't changed, thank goodness. But and, and IRS doesn't have authority to make those changes through this kind of communication anyway. But this guide is a great source for one-stop shopping for all things UBI. It's intended for IRS agents, but it provides a slew of useful information for nonprofits and for tax practitioners. So to that end, the technical guide is made available to the public on the IRS website. And a link to the guide is here on this slide for your reading pleasure. Uh, in case you're ever having trouble sleeping or something, this will be great help. Uh, can I have the next slide, please? Thank you. And now for something completely different. Starting on January 1st of this year, there's a new annual report that many U.S. businesses are now going to be required to file with the Treasury Department. It's the Beneficial Ownership Information Report, or BOI for short. This new required reporting is meant to increase accountability and make it harder for bad actors co to commit fraud through shell companies and other business entities. It reports quite a lot of identifying information for individuals who directly or indirectly control a company. Uh, Treasury means business with this new reporting, and you've probably seen some uh, information blast across the wire about this. They're really trying to make it known that this thing is required. Uh, the failure to file a proper BOI report can result in civil and criminal penalties of up to $100,000 per malfeasance and also possibly up to two years of prison time. So really, it's best not to risk it. Can I have the next slide, please? Thank you. Uh, the BOI reporting rule is broad, and it's intended to reach far and wide across the business world. Uh, the good news is that many nonprofit organizations are going to be exempt from filing this report. And the filing exemptions, some of them anyway, are listed here. There's 23 in total that Treasury has announced, but these are the relevant ones that I thought we should share here. Uh, the filing exemptions include governmental units, uh, organizations exempt under Section 501C, uh, Section 527 political organizations, uh, Section 4947 charitable trusts, and then certain entities that assist exempt organizations and certain taxable subsidiaries of exempt organizations, not all of them. So it's important to note that not all the taxable subsidiaries are automatically exempted just because of their association with an exempt. So if you don't know whether you're required to file this thing, and I know Treasury has been trying to make it very clear ab about the requirement. Uh, if you're not sure whether you need to file this thing, please do check with your legal counsel. As I said, this is a new requirement and you don't wanna get caught on the wrong side of it accidentally because you assumed you're doing the right thing. So good times, right? And uh, now Jana is going to say a few words about a new-ish rule for exempt organizations doing business in DC. Thank you, Lisa. So the DC tax exemption renewal, um, as most of you know, in 2019, um, the District of Columbia Office of Tax and Revenue began to expire any current DC tax exemption status issued more than four years prior and added a new requirement to renew it every five years. So what that means is those first organizations that had to renew in 2019 will be up for their second renewal this year in 2024. So DC has said that they will send notices 180 days prior to the expiration. Well, we don't want you to count on that because, you know, with COVID, you may have been, you may have changed into maybe a virtual environment or a hybrid environment. There could be delays in the mail. So we ask organizations to be proactive. Go ahead and log online to mytaxdc.gov, which is where you'll have to go to um, renew your registration anyway. And make sure that you check to see if your um, exemption has expired or if it's close to expiration. And then go ahead and file that FR-164 to renew the um, exemption certificate. 
Um, some things to have on hand is your latest determination ruling from the IRS. If you're incorporated in DC, your certificate of incorporation. If you're not incorporated in DC, your certificate of authority. And if you've previously been recognized as a tax exemption, it's good to have a copy of that um, exemption certificate as well. And now back to Lisa for the automatic penalty relief discussion. Thanks, Jana. Almost done here. Uh, okay, so you probably already know that IRS pretty much fell apart during the COVID pandemic, right? So, and we don't have time to unpack that right now. Maybe, maybe another session, another time. But one of the many things that happened is that back in February 2022, IRS stopped mailing certain automated reminder notices for unpaid income taxes. Uh, these reminders would have informed taxpayers of tax balances due for 2020 and 2021, including interest and certain assessed penalties. IRS is now planning to resume collection notices for these unpaid tax bills. But meanwhile, there are quite a few taxpayers out there that haven't received any balance due notices from IRS in over a year. So on December 19th, IRS announced new penalty relief for approximately 4.7 million taxpayers, individuals, businesses, and tax-exempt organizations that were not sent these automatic collection uh, reminder notices during the pandemic. IRS will waive the failure to pay penalties for eligible taxpayers for 2020 and 2021. Uh, the criteria for eligibility are listed on the next slide. Uh, this penalty relief is automatic and it's supposed to happen between now and March 2024. You don't need to do anything if you're eligible because uh, it's automatic penalty relief. Uh, note, uh, could I have the next slide, please? Uh, note that any taxes due plus interest for these years will not be waived. Only the failure to pay penalties on these balances due. But that's that's something, and something is better than nothing. Uh, penalties related to Form 990-T filings are included in this automated penalty relief. But the penalty relief does not apply to uh, a late-filed Form 990 during this period. So if, if for whatever reason you filed your Form 990 late for 2020 or 2021, those uh, per day uh, late payment penalties uh, are not going to be affected by this, unfortunately. Uh, for more information, we've provided a link to the IRS announcement on this slide. And that's it for the tax update. Uh, thank you everybody for your time and attention. And now we'll go to a polling question. All right. Hello, everybody. Wow, it's been action-packed so far, and uh, this train is not going to stop. I'm going to try to give you a lot of information here in the next, let's say, eight to ten minutes. Um, but again, my name is Melissa Musser, partner and director of Risk and Advisory Services here at GRF. Wish I could shake your hand today, but you know what? Why don't you find me on LinkedIn, connect with me, send me a message, say that you attended our event today. would love to connect with you. So, I'm going to talk a little bit about our GRF top risk report that'll be coming out here very soon. And then also we're going to talk about forecasted risks like three years out from now. And then an overview of the two top accelerating risks I want to talk with you about and the importance of board oversight. All right. So what you see here is what you guys will be getting attending this event today. You will be getting followed up at some point with our top risk reports for nonprofits and associations. I hope you enjoy it. So our team worked really hard. We got our crystal ball out and we also searched the internet for all the wonderful top risk reports that many organizations put together. And we took them and synthesized them and put those reports into an appendix with links. So it could be your one-stop shop for top risk information. And then we synthesize that information again to tailor it to nonprofits and associations. So we've got some really good action items for you. Um, this is the second time we've done it this way and, and it was really well received last year. But 
Theme number one, cybersecurity is not going anywhere. So number one risk, obviously economic conditions continue to remain uncertain. Attracting and retaining talent is still top of the list. DEI is an important element of that. And Trevor's gonna talk about that next. And then also we have lots of elections all over the world um, going on. We have ESG and just global, global conflict, obviously affecting long-term planning and then artificial intelligence. It's both a opportunity and a risk. So on the next slide is something from, and this, this um, is from the Institute of Internal Auditors. It is the Risk in Focus report. And this is also included in the appendix of the report that you will be receiving. But what I like about this, it surveyed um, chief audit executives and it asked, you know, what are the top, you know, five risks of your organization, things that'll be included in your audit plan. And I really wanted to point out, they said, what do you project within the next three years? And I want to talk to you about what we're seeing as being projected, but you will notice cybersecurity continues to remain on top as well as human capital and business continuity. So they're, they're staying up there. Um, and so those are things you're gonna need to focus on, but I really wanna talk to you about digital disruption and climate change so that we're gonna be focusing on that in the next few slides here. All right, so generative AI, right? That's AI that can generate content, pretty amazing stuff. And so, here is a link to the Great Acceleration. It's an MIT survey done on uh, CIOs, right? And this is a professor. Here's a, a quote from a professor, Michael Farben. I can't think of anything that's been more powerful since the desktop computer. This is really big stuff. And uh, I'm sure you've all, um, you know, toyed around with ChatGPT, um, but we're going to be seeing a lot of change here. And if you go to the next slide, I wanted to share with you, um, this is from this report you have a link on, forecasted adoption by function. This is going to affect an entire organization, right? Just digital transformation across, you know, the area. You know, you heard our tax team talking about marketing and using AI and campaigns, but you'll also notice here in the black, it, it talks about the percent of which AI will be a critical part of that function. So you'll notice here, IT, 49% are saying that AI is going to be a critical part of the function as well as finance. So I'm, we're totally expecting to see, and we're already seeing it, digital transformation being on the top of the list as part of your strategic plans. I'm really looking to see how organizations are going to evolve. All right, so leaders, you're gonna need to put on your innovation and disruption hats, right? We have to harness just the chaos of continuous change. I mean, since post-COVID, I even remember in 2018, things were things were changing rapidly. It's not gonna stop. So we just really need to embrace both innovation, which is doing the same things, but better, right? And then disruption. We just need to be ready to be disrupted. We've been disrupted enough, you know, we're ready for it now. So, but we need to just be really, we just need to embrace it, right? Um, so we need to be doing new things, brand new things that make the old things obsolete. So we really need to embrace that in our culture. All right, so moving to ESG, I, I know, you know climate change is on the rise. Concepts of ESG have been around for a very long time. This is not new um, at all. Uh, DEI is, is definitely an element of the social aspect of it. I know Trevor's gonna talk about that. Governance is something that we're always talking about. Nonprofits are really in tune to governance, um, board composition, you know, uh, whistleblower, uh, ERM is really useful with governance, but the big kind of change, and, and it, you know, it's a little different for folks to be thinking about, is this environmental impact. And I want to talk a little bit about that on the next slide. You're going to be seeing a lot more with, uh, you know, for example, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, next slide, please. 
So we've got, you know, folks will be talking about scope one, two, and three emissions and really needing to do an emissions inventory. So in the context of nonprofits, you know, what, what does that really mean? Um, so scope, scope one emissions are emissions that, you know, your nonprofit or association directly owns, like for example, vehicles, right? Or let's say you have a, your own power generator. Um, scope two emissions will be indirect emissions. So for example, from your, from the building um, or maybe an event or other activities that are being caused by that. And then scope three emissions are emissions that are not directly produced, but let's say you have an event and a lot of attendees needed to travel to your event. That would be an example of a scope three emission. So it's gonna be important to do an inventory and to really understand your footprint in order for you to identify ways to reduce that. You're gonna probably be seeing different folks. Yeah, it's good to stay on this slide. You'll be seeing different folks asking about this information. Third parties will be asking for this. We'll see folks starting to report this on, let's say their annual reports or have it on their websites. So you're gonna be seeing a lot of activity in this area. Another newer concept is double materiality. And this is an ESG concept. I love this. Um, if you know anything about me, I love enterprise risk management. And typically when we see these types of heat maps, it's like you're, you're gonna see likelihood and impact, right? And it helps you focus on the most important things to focus on. But in this concept, it's double materiality, which I really love. It's the significance to the stakeholder, right? And the stakeholder being, let's say, your employees, the people that you serve, you know, the environment. Like, so what's, so you have stakeholders, right? And then you have your organization. And so what is the most significant to both the organization and your stakeholders? And, and we did this in a little plotting so that you can kind of see where in the different buckets of ESG fall into this materiality assessment. Really important to, um, to map this out because it's gonna help you figure out what your strategy is going to be as it relates to ESG and to really make your stakeholders happy and to really deliver on their expectations. All right, so to help with all of this, um, it's strongly encouraged to have good board risk oversight. Enterprise risk management definitely helps. This is one of the ways that we suggest organizations kind of situate uh, their enterprise risk management with a management risk council. And then that then reports the information flows directly to the board of directors and back because the board of directors is responsible for risk oversight. And we need to make sure that they're getting the information that they need to be able to make good decisions for the organization. You want to learn more about ERM on this next slide here. We have an event coming up in February. Um, so check out our website, come to the event. We can share ideas uh, with other like-minded organizations and we're definitely happy to help. So, and we also have a lot of great tools and resources on our website about enterprise risk management. So definitely check that out. And we will be planning an ESG summit sometime in the spring. So more information to come on that. We can share some information and talk a little bit more about what I just highlighted today. So I'll be turning it over to Trevor, but I think first we have another question. All right. Thank you so much, Melissa. So far, so good. Some really outstanding stuff. Hopefully I can uh, continue in the same vein and providing you all with some really, really useful information as you get through 2024. So specifically, I'm going to touch on elevating DEI with some sustainable strategies. First, we'll talk about some trends, things that we saw in 2023, talk about some opportunities, and what should I prioritize? So for current outlook, I am putting together this subject matter that I'm going to share with you all today. I came across this particular quote uh, by Laurie uh, Olivent, 
which I believe hits the nail on the head. Uh, 2023 reminded us how quickly the DEI landscape can evolve and our learnings from 2023 are a reminder that no DEI policy should remain stagnant and should be subject to continuous monitoring, adjustment, and review. And again, I believe that this not only applies to 2023, but I think if you look back ever since 2020, I think the statement holds true. Next slide. All right, for 2023, some uh, key information that I've been able to get and uh, share with you all. That first bullet, four and five job seekers and employees value diverse companies and coworkers. 80%, 80% of job seekers and employees aged 18 to 34 polled said a company's investment in DEI was an important factor for them when, in value, when evaluating, excuse me, job opportunities and companies. Goes down slightly for the next age group, age 35 to 54, decreased to 74%. And for individuals age 55 to 64, 67%. And age 65 and older, 61%. Still extremely high. Next bullet talks about 50% of employees want their companies to invest more in diversity and inclusion. Next slide. This bullet talks about the employee's view and they view a company's DEI program as a positive benefit. An overwhelming majority of US employee reviewers on Glassdoor between 61 to 72% over the past six years view their company's diversity program as a positive benefit. It is a pro of working at the company. Next slide. Employees want their company to be more LGBTQ plus inclusive. In a June 2020 report by McKinsey and Company, reported 40% of US employees feel their companies aren't doing enough to inclusively hire more members of the LGBTQ plus community. And 15% of LGBTQ plus women believe that their sexual orientation will negatively affect their career advancement at work. And as you can see, this number doubles if you are LGBTQ plus man. So in a nutshell, that explains it, why individuals feel as though that they can't be their true selves at work. And it's a real, real problem. Next slide. This particular bullet uh, polls women and they value company investment in DEI as well as they wouldn't work for a non-inclusive company. 76% of women surveyed by Glassdoor in their 2022 report view corporate investment in DEI important when considering a job. And also 44% of women respondents said they have decided against pursuing or accepting a job position due to the belief that the organization wouldn't be inclusive. All right, this next one, I really love this particular slide here. Corporate investment in DEI among all industries in the United States. It surged in 2020 and 2021, but stalled a bit in 2022. And there you can see the percentages. However, among nonprofits and NGOs, those numbers were higher. In 2020, in 2019, 30%, 2021, 46%, 2022, 
and in 2022, 47%. Additionally, getting more specific by the geographical area of Washington, D.C., in 2019, 53%. 2020, 63%, 2021, 67%, and 2022, 64%. Incredible numbers. Next slide. So this next one, as we all know, there's been quite a bit of backlash concerning uh, DEI and various initiatives associated with it. However, three in four companies believe diversity, equity, and inclusion is a priority. With last summer's U.S. Supreme Court ruling striking down college affirmative action and a wave of state and local level legislative moves aimed largely at restricting DEI work in academia, many have questioned the future of DEI at work. According to a January 2024 C-suite survey reported by Littler article in the HR Executive, 60% of the more than 300 C-suite leaders surveyed said that their organization has expanded their DEI work last year, while 33 maintained it and 1% significantly decreased their DEI activities. So in a nutshell, just putting personal agendas aside, now is not the time to abandon your efforts for creating a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive organization. Now is in fact the time to do an assessment of your organization and assess and determine whether or not your objectives are being achieved as well as the desired outcomes. Next slide. So for 2024, here's the opportunity. Assuming that you formalize your DEI efforts for a few years and or have made a decision to double down in support of DEI, employees are eager to see progress. Leadership wants to know what's working, as well as your clients or constituents. Next slide. So the challenge, you're struggling to move forward. How do you continue to drive organizational-wide commitment to DEI while energizing your people about your progress? Where do you go next? The opportunity, because you have a number of programs in place and already gained organizational buy-in, you determine what's really working and continually build on the progress that you've already made. And the solution, you have to take the pulse of your organization to understand what is really working, where you still have those gaps and focus those efforts and potentially refining your priorities. But the main question is, how do you do that? So I have a couple of priorities for you. 10, in fact. The first one, assess your company's current DEI progress. A company that wants to commit to DEI needs to know where it's starting. Specifically, to give you an example, at GRF, our firm, we engage with a highly recommended DEI consultant that specializes in accounting firms, and we had an overall DEI assessment. I encourage you all to do the same. You really want to take the pulse of your whole organization through a DEI lens. Learn what your employees are experiencing in their everyday work environment. You want to hear from your leaders and key groups of employees through interviews and focus groups. You want to understand what it's like to work at your organization from the perspective of your executives and the select group of the employees that you uh, survey. 
You want to examine whether your HR practices and talent systems are working equitably. That's key. You want to make sure that they're operating equitably, equitably, excuse me, for everyone. You want to understand why people leave through conducting exit interviews. You want to listen to those who left and know what you could have done to retain them. You want to identify where your employees are stuck. You want to pinpoint problems and specifically in the areas of hiring, promotion, and retention of key groups through a detailed talent flow analysis. And you even want to take a look at pay equity. You want to get a scorecard of how your pay as well as the benefits and rewards stack up by gender or other dem demographic areas. So the second uh, initiative to prioritize is articulate your leadership level support and participation for DEI. Again, I'm gonna give you an example specifically from our firm and what we've done. Uh, at GRF, we formed an actual DEI council, which is comprised of uh, eight partners and principals. And the premise behind that is that we wanted to have an executive level committee that brings the strategic view of our business strategy, the market, as well as knowledge of all the components of the firm from a leadership view. And we felt that was very essential. And to address the critical stage in your DEI journey, we believe that you really have to take a look from a top-down approach to really get engaged on what those uh, various priorities and goals are, which impact every department and every facet of your respective organizations. You want to give uh, your leadership uh, a, a full a compliment, if you will, to go on their own personal journey uh, to really take a look at themselves individually as well as collectively to see how they may positively impact your respective organizations as well as the investment that you're uh, currently undertaking. The third initiative is to engage unbiased hiring practices. I think that's key, very key. You want to convert all job descriptions to use gender neutral language. You want to state the commitment that you have to building a diverse, equitable, and inclusive culture, as well as you want to take a look at possibly going with results-based job descriptions. As studies have shown that men apply for a job when they meet about 60% of the qualifications, but women will only apply when they meet 100%. So instead of focusing on a checklist of skills that may weed out great female and minority candidates, the job description, job descriptions, excuse me, should ideally focus on what a candidate will be expected to achieve, say in a month, six months, or a year into the job. And lastly, you want to conduct anonymous screenings. You want to review a resume without looking at a name. You want to ban culture fit as a reason for rejecting a candidate. So when interviewers want to reject candidates for culture fit or a gut feeling, it's an indication that unconscious bias is at play. And you want to challenge the interviewers to articulate a more specific explanation. It's a great way to uncover hidden biases that have had, uh, excuse me, you want to uh, do these as a way not to punish them, but at least to bring it to the forefront and alert them to those biases. So the next initiative talks about investing in employee resource groups. And those employee resource groups are basically an employee-led uh, group that aims to foster a sense of belonging within your organizations. 
as well as contribute to a more inclusive company culture. Typically, these groups are designed to support employees who share a common identity or characteristics. ERGs hold regular meetings, special events, as well as community volunteering initiatives designed to support their members, as well as provide a real safe space for them to talk about common obstacles and develop solutions for issues impacting the company and the community. The next initiative talks about supporting mentorship and sponsorship opportunities. And mentorship, true mentorship occurs when a more experienced employee provides guidance to the less experienced colleague and a sponsor is someone who will advocate for that person on their behalf in those high level meetings. Studies show that companies that encourage mentorships and sponsorships stand to keep their employees happier as well as retain them at your company longer. Also, one key uh, point out about the employee resource groups, that's a great way or a great place actually to begin to cultivate those formal mentorships and sponsorships. Next slide. Initiative number six, you wanna offer talent development programs for those underrepresented staff members. So successful implementation here will include input from a couple of different departments at your organizations, specifically HR, your various department leaders, as well as your organization's leadership. You wanna take a look at the current leadership pipeline, as well as you wanna see which steps are prohibiting individuals from underrepresented groups from making it to that pipeline. You wanna do an annual review of it and you want to bring in each of those different departments, HR, the department leaders, as well as the firm leadership. And you want to have open discussions to increase the awareness of those factors that are influencing progression of those who represent various uh, aspects of diversity. And you want to be intentional in your various strategies among all the departments in diversifying the pipeline of talent. And those individuals in that pipeline you wanna have an opportunity for them to meet with their mentor slash sponsor to design a skill development program, which is very targeted for them individually so that it'll close those developmental gaps. You wanna have a clarification of goals, aspirations, opportunities, as well as those challenges. And you wanna put a plan that is specific to them for them to actively work towards for achievement. And additionally, it's also advisable for the sponsors because not everybody has that skill set to be able to do that. But you want to provide your sponsors as well with the necessary training to be able to do that. Initiative seven is to host DEI educational events and provide DEI training across all levels. Again, using our firm as an example, oftentimes throughout the year, we conduct company-wide DEI educational events. We offer smaller group events, as well as provide individual courses, micro lessons, and a variety of DEI topics, subject matter, et cetera. And they can access this at their own leisure. And it's our hope to allow all of our employees the freedom to engage and share their personal experiences, both in large as well as small groups. And we seek to commemorate, acknowledge, and celebrate our similarities and differences with various cultures, important people, events in history, et cetera. 
that's aligned with our culture, values, as well as those employee resource groups. And through the training that we have, it's also our goal to help our employees identify those potential biases that are that they bring into the workplace and learn how to support our various DEI goals. The next goal or initiative eight, align DEI strategy with company business strategy and use of metrics. At a minimum, you wanna have all of the leaders at the table and they should participate in an annual discussion relative to your progress of DEI. You also wanna use metrics and that's very key here as a guideline for the direction and assessment of your progress. What metrics are important to your organizations and there's no one size fit all approach. Some key ones to take into consideration would be recruitment and hiring statistics by gender, ethnicity, and level, turnover statistics as a percentage of the whole organization and a percentage of each group by gender, as well as ethnicity and level, and loss of the pipeline within each group. You wanna take a look at the pipeline of women, underrepresented minorities, and other diverse individuals at leadership positions. Nine, you want to craft a plan for communicating about DEI issues. As you can imagine, there's a great, great opportunity as well as a risk that your uh, DEI efforts could be misunderstood. At best, those misunderstandings slow down your progress, and at worst, they can cause resistance as or and or passive aggressive behavior. And you want to have a focus and intentional communication regarding each initiative, as well as provide regular updates for progress, success stories, as well as activities that are essential to keep the initiatives on track. And last but certainly not least time, 10, you wanna prog provide progress updates. And it's my suggestion that you do monthly updates to the various uh, departments that you have, uh, the management departments, and whenever you have an all staff meeting, I suggest that you provide an update to all that are attending these uh, staff meetings. And at the end of the year, I uh, suggest that you uh, put together a recap or a transparency report. So I know it gave you an awful lot of information in a short period of time, but I'll just leave you with this. You know, please remember that every organization's DEI journey is unique. And again, there is no one size fit all approach. Unfortunately, all too often, uh, when it comes to addressing a challenge and or growing a program, a lot of DEI practitioners often look at what other companies have done and they try to duplicate that. But rather, they should assess what's actually happening in your own organization. And by identifying and using the correct data, you can not only tailor your strategy, you can clearly demonstrate the impact on your efforts. And that is it for me. And before I pass this on, you can see polling question number five. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us today. Hopefully that's enough time to answer. I know our questions are a little bit easier than probably you'd expect on a webinar. So hopefully you've gotten all your CPE credit and answered all the questions as we've gone along. And hopefully most importantly, you can hear me, but if not, I can assure you that it's gonna be quality content. Hopefully you go would agree with me. As we mentioned earlier, Yuko Kojima is with us today and she has graciously offered her time to share her experiences and insights into everything surrounding systems, skills, processes, and just general trends in the accounting industry. 
She is the CFO at National Glass Association, which is a trade association representing the glass and glazing industry. NGA focuses on providing education, advocacy, resources to its members, promoting safety, driving industry standards and innovation. Yuko and her CFO role oversees the entire accounting and finance function in NGA, and she works closely with her team, which we'll touch upon in a little bit, to provide timely, accurate financial reports to the president and CEO and the NGA board. I can very confidently say from my experience in working with Yuko that she's extremely forward thinking and is constantly coming up with ways to improve processes and systems at NGA. And so with that, I think we can jump into some of our questions for Yuko. So Yuko, to begin, I think most organizations would agree that these days, probably human resources is their most valuable asset. And I think from what I've observed, that certainly rings true at NGA. So. Given this, maybe if you could just please briefly describe your team at NGN Finance and Accounting. Yes, thank you for that question. Our finance department has four staff members, including myself. We have a staff accountant and accounting assistant. We also have a part-time accountant. Both of the staff accountant and accounting assistant are still new to NGA. The staff accountant was hired in June 2023, and the accounting assistant was hired in October 2022. They work very hard and are great assets to the finance team and the entire organization. Excellent. So given this team, what would you say from your perspective as a CFO were some of your proudest accomplishments in finance and accounting at NGA in 2023? The biggest accomplishment we made as a team last year was the staff members managed to keep the finance department running while I was out for two months. The keys to the accomplishment were the time they put in to prepare and the willingness to take on additional responsibilities. To prepare, we made a complete list of tasks. We made sure each staff member knows the processes. In case there are any questions about any of the processes, we created instructions for each task, saved them in electronic format, and stored them in SharePoint. In the list of tasks, we included links to the instructions so everyone was able to access the instructions very easily. In addition to that, during my leave, GRF handled many of the CFO duties, and that was very helpful. So thank you so much for that. Thank you. Thank you for the shout out. I think also, I mean, in addition to processes and having the people in place, I think given where we are in general in the accounting industry and obviously under the industries like Melissa touched upon earlier, technology plays a big role. So with that in mind, what systems can you speak about that you all have in place that you believe are helping you to operate in this kind of post-COVID remote paperless world? That is a great question, as NGA doesn't have a physical office, and all of our staff members work completely remotely. All of our systems are cloud-based. We don't use physical in-house servers anymore, and that allows us to work remotely. The systems we use most frequently are Sage Intact, Teams, and SharePoint. Sage Intact is cloud-based, and we have user accounts for both finance and non-finance staff, so they can process and access financial data remotely. All of our staff members are signed into Teams, and that allows us to stay connected. 
As to being paperless, now most of our work files are saved in electronic format. We store them in SharePoint so we can access those files anytime from anywhere. Excellent. Okay. Well, I think at this point, it almost seems like from a process standpoint, system standpoint, you have it together at NGA. You've thought it through. But I think obviously any organization now is dealing with challenges. And I'm curious, from your perspective, what challenges do you see ahead for NGA? The biggest challenge I see is how we can further streamline the processes. That is the biggest challenge because NGA is a small organization with so many activities. We are a trade association with 1,800 member companies. We offer educational and training courses with more than 4,000 users. We also host an annual trade show and other events. So there are many transactions for membership, products, events, and so on. The challenge is to record these transactions timely and correctly and make the processes as simple and smooth as possible. In order to streamline the processes, we are working on automating repeating tasks. For example, we have been working on setting up Concur to handle expense reports and vendor invoices. We are also working on integration of multiple systems so data can be automatically transferred between those systems. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah, and I think I, I want to say that in working with you over the past two years, what I've really appreciated about you and just your general philosophy to challenges or issues, whatever you want to call them, is that you've always very graciously reformulated them to be basically opportunities. And I think that's something that probably Melissa touched upon earlier, that with, with any risk, if you reframe the problem, so to speak, you it's important to see the opportunity there. So I'm, I'm curious, given that, what are you most looking forward to working on in 2024 in finance? I can think of two things. One of them is the implementation of Concur. We are working on the implementation of Concur, and that should help us streamline the processes and reduce the burden on the finance and non-finance staff. And this implementation should be completed this year. GRF is a big part of the implementation process. So thank you so much for that as well. The other thing is the integration of the systems and the databases. We are working on the integration to reduce the number of manual data transfers. Some of the integration projects should be completed this year as well, and we are looking forward to it. Excellent. So I guess just last question, I think to kind of round all of this out, given what we've discussed about systems, humans, human resources, processes, I'm curious in your position, in your position, just in, from your perspective, what would you say are the most important skills that you think are going to be necessary or helpful for accounting professionals to have success in 2024 and just beyond? There are two sets of skills I can think of. One of them is IT skills. Many businesses and organizations are trying to eliminate manual processes and automate those processes. Some are even willing to introduce AI. So it's important that we keep trying to improve our IT skills. The other set is communication skills. First, it's important to maintain a good team. 
Second, it's important to present accounting information in ways that can be understood by people who are less familiar with accounting principles and terminologies. Also, nowadays, everyone is busy and moving very quickly. So it's important to communicate financial data efficiently and effectively. NGA has training sessions in these areas, and I'm working on these skills myself. Excellent. Yeah, you know, it's very interesting about your response. It's it's very similar to, I think, the rhetoric that's been pushed forward at a lot of the industry conferences I've been fortunate to attend over the, probably the past three years. It's It's been a resounding theme that accounting professionals these days, it's not so much the purely technical accounting skills that are as much on the minds of hiring professionals as it is really what you mentioned, I think. It's those IT skills, given everything that's happening and especially transpired over the past probably year, year and a half with ChatGPT and just general AI and technology. But then perhaps more importantly, on the more, I guess you can call it human skills, the communication skills that you spoke to, just being able to very succinctly, clearly formulate your thoughts to people that may not have that accounting background. That's, I, to me, it's, it's probably priceless. And so, with that, I want to say, from my perspective, it's been really a pleasure working with you over the past few years and looking forward to everything that we have, I think, working on together in 2024 and how much these two skills, I think, are pronounced, again, from my perspective and you, how you very clearly think through systems problems and just logically can very clearly formulate your ideas when we have calls and emails. So yeah, I think the the future is bright for NGA and I'm very much fortunate and, and grateful to be a part of that with you. So thank you once again for your time today. Thank you so much. Okay, I, I guess with that, I don't know who I'm turning it over, but I'm gonna kind of throw it into the general GRF abyss and I hope that somebody will pick it up from here. That would be over to me, Yev. Um, thank you so much, Yev and Yuko, for the wonderful fireside chat. If you're looking for more conversations like this, I would encourage you to check out our new podcast, GRF on the Go. But And, and before we wrap up, I just want to receive uh, answer some of the questions that we did receive. I know some of them were answered either in the chat um, or in the, the Q&A. But I do think we have a few. And one of them I wanted to, to point out really was actually there was one for Yuko um, and, and see if she could tell a little bit about her um, describe your IT department and the support that they provide. And and I can I can jump in too, because I've been very fortunate to work with Yuko very closely. I think from my perspective, in terms of the, the setup of the systems, particularly on the accounting finance side. Everything is just very seamless. I mean, NGA really figured out everything that probably, unfortunately, a lot of us had to figure out very quickly because of COVID. But that infrastructure, there is very, I, I can't think of one incident where there's been where the, the teams or the SharePoint systems have been down and just generally the setup of everything having to do with Intact. And whenever we've had any questions, I basically sent the email to Yuko and it's basically answered within a matter of minutes from, from their IT team. So uh, I, I think maybe that, if nothing else, that perspective, at least for me and working with Yuko in an outsourced capacity can, can hopefully shed some light on that. Great, thank you. Um, another question, um, I think there was a couple more here that we can try to get to. Um, and some of the, a couple of those were around DEI. So I think they were for Trevor. 
Um, and a couple of those on just statistics between the nonprofit industry versus for-profit. And I do think maybe you did have a slide on that, Trevor. I don't know if there's uh, additional statistics that you may have um, that you could provide or, or discuss. Uh, the question that I think I saw in the chat had to do with funding and specifically with the uh, amount of funds that have, have been dwindling in the DEI landscape, you know, how much are, are companies spending? And that's a that's a loaded and an extremely complex question to take a look at and to answer because every organization is different. I think, you know, one of the things that you need to take a look at it and really get a, a handle on is, you know, what type of organization do you want to build? And, you know, what kind of organization are you proud to put your name in? And, you know, do you want to have an organization where individuals see you as a leader uh, as it pertains to diversity, equity, and inclusion? And do you want to have an organization or company that has a diverse workforce and you have strong belonging from its employees. So, you know, those types of questions and, and responses, they're all relative, again, depending upon the size of the organization. But, you know, I would say, you know, if, if I were to, to take a number out of the out of the sky, I would say, you know, a budget of about 25,000, but, you know, that can definitely skyrocket from there. Great, thank you, Trevor. And then I did have a couple other questions here on, uh, I think these are from Melissa. Uh, and and it's, I have two, and one of them is, how can ERM help with ESG? Yeah, sure, so if you already have ERM in place, ESG may already be on your radar. That's the beauty of ERM, is that things get on your radar a lot quickly, a lot more quickly. Um, and it may have been in different areas, you know, maybe, you know, it was DEI bubbled up over here or whistleblower bubbled up over here. And, and you can flag those as ESG and maybe look at them from different perspectives. And what's nice about ERM is uh, oftentimes, you know, you're looking at it from the enterprise perspective and you have risk owners. So you can assign it to folks to really kind of oversee. So, um, so definitely ERM can help with ESG. It can help you delegating the tasks and making sure it gets complete, as well as making sure the information flows all the way up to the board of directors. Obviously the G in ESG is important. So it's almost like, you know, the chicken and the egg, you gotta have governance in order to comply with ESG and ERM helps you get that governance that you need so that you can make um, good business decisions for the organization. And I have one more here, Melissa, that I think is interesting is, what is most important when looking into technology and AI? Okay, well, I'm because sure we've seen this at uh, GRF, I'm sure too, is there's going to be a lot of technology flowing around. And I think we just really need to pause and look at our strategy and look at our goals and objectives, right? And, you know, we're not going to be able to go after every single thing that comes across. So we all, we need to form committees and maybe ERM is, you know, a, a committee that can handle this as well, or some kind of technology committee where we come together and see, you know, what are we trying to solve with this? What are we going to gain? And, you know, I mean, obviously we don't have unlimited funds, right? So we really need to put some good breaks so that we can really analyze um, things before we invest. And then once we figure out what we want to invest, Let's do a good current state, right? Because sometimes folks will think that technology is going to fix something when if the process is broken, let's also fix the process. So a good pre-current state where you're at, 
because there could be staffing or other things that might need to change. And then a good post implementation assessment so that you could make sure you understand uh, the cybersecurity risks that may have been, you know, you know, good IT controls. You know, I'm always talking about that, but really understanding um, the transparency of the AI if you are adopting AI and make sure you have good controls around that as well. Great, great. And I think I have a couple, two minutes left. Um, one question, I want to throw this back over to Lisa and Jana. Um, I did see uh, that they one thing was that they didn't, someone had commented they wish they had a little bit more time, I think, on DAFs. But one of the questions that that came up was when reapplying for tax exemption in DC, will we still need to attach an affirmation letter to prove that our tax exemption is current with the IRS? Our organization is pretty old and getting a copy of the letter is a pain. Hi, Amy, I, I could take that one. No, that requirement is no longer um, valid. They they have walked back on that and you can just now send um, the more recent IRS exemption letter, that, the most recent IRS exemption letter you have. I know it was a hassle to get those affirmation letters and it was holding up the process and taking some time for the IRS to actually provide them to the organization. So yeah, the answer is no, you can just provide the IRS exemption letter. And then I did, I did respond, I think, and say, you know, between, I think the comment was more information on ERM and ESG. And I think that we can definitely pursue that individually and set up some meetings and have some time to talk with you all. But I think that, that they're very important, obviously, and, and something that we want to focus some time on. So please do reach out and we will, we will coordinate some time to talk about your organization and how those affect that. Um, but with that, we would like to thank everyone for attending today's discussion. We encourage you to follow us on social media at GRF CPAs and visit our website for upcoming events and alerts. Thanks again and have a great day. Thank you for listening to the GRF on the Co podcast. Visit our website at grfcpa.com for more information about the services we provide, the industries we serve, or to request a quote.